We're uh, continuing to make our way through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we come to Luke chapter 19 this morning. It's a story that uh, many of you may be familiar with, uh, but I think you'll see there's a lot that we often miss in the way that we tell this story. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. The reading today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the way that it connects to our lives and pray, Lord, that you would do your work through your word today. Uh, Lord, no one needs to hear from me. We need to hear from you. Uh, So we pray that you would use these words uh, to get inside us, to rearrange and reorder our lives, uh, that we might know your salvation and that we might be your people on mission in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, um, in this passage, Jesus drops another one of his mission statements. And we've already seen this in the Gospel of Luke, all the way back in chapter 4, when he stands up at the synagogue and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he applies it to himself when he says, I have been anointed to preach good news to the poor. I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives. We saw a little later in the Gospel of Luke When Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then now we get to chapter 19, and Jesus drops what is at least his third mission statement in the Gospel of Luke, but likely more. He says, I have come to seek and save the lost. Mic drop. And what that tells us is, this story is primarily about Jesus and his work in the world and not about Zacchaeus. And that's important to remember that Jesus plays the leading role, that this story is given to us by the author Luke in order to show us something about Jesus and then show us something about ourselves and how we respond to him. And it's interesting because there's actually two other characters in this passage beside Jesus. One is really obvious, and that is Zacchaeus, and we need to pay attention to him. He's the one who receives Jesus' seeking and saving. But often overlooked is the other character in this story, and that is the crowd. 
They grumble at Jesus seeking and saving Zacchaeus. And by now, this way of telling these stories about Jesus should be very familiar to us. Luke has been doing it all along. All the way back in chapter 7, he told the story of Simon the Pharisee and the woman of the city, the prostitute, contrasting their two responses to him. We saw weeks ago in the parable of the prodigal son that it actually should be called the story of the two brothers, the older and the younger, who respond differently to Jesus. And then we saw just a few weeks ago, Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And then a little bit later after that, the little children and the rich young ruler. Over and over again, Luke is telling stories about Jesus in this way, contrasting different responses to him. And he's doing it to make a point. And the point is this, how will you respond to Jesus? That's why these stories are here. How are you going to respond to Jesus? And I think there's two things we need to tend to in our hearts this morning as we look at this story. The first is, do we see ourselves as ones who need Jesus' seeking and saving? And that's a really important question to explore. But there's a second, and that is, do we want to join Jesus in his mission of seeking and saving the lost? See, our, our answers to these two questions will tell us a whole lot about our understanding of Christianity and a whole lot about our understanding of ourselves. And so what I want to do is tease out a few things from this passage this morning that I think we need to take to heart that will actually help us answer these two questions for ourselves. Is do we see ourselves as ones who need the seeking and saving of Jesus? And are we willing to participate in his mission of seeking and saving the lost? And so I want to begin with with this, that I think one of the reasons Luke tells us this story, as he's told so many stories already in his gospel, is to emphasize this fundamental point, and that is there are no hopeless cases. Zacchaeus is yet another example of the surprising reach of God's astounding grace, but I think we often miss it because we've cleaned this story up a little, little too much. The way we tell it in Sunday school is Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. You know the song goes, right? And this becomes a story about the little guy defying the odds. He can't see Jesus until he gets up in a tree and look at how well it works out for him. But this is really important. Zacchaeus is a guy that we would all love to hate. He's a guy we'd all love to hate. We're told in verse 2 that he was a tax collector. And you're like, yep. I hate those people, right? Tax collectors, though, they were universally despised in Roman colonies because everybody knew that they overcharged what the Roman government allowed them to to charge, and they pocketed the excess. And this is sort of a wink-wink gentleman's agreement, right? People would apply for the right to be able to collect taxes, and it would go to the highest bidder, and you would prepay. And then whatever you wanted to charge on top of that, that was yours to keep. So tax collectors were looked at in the first century a lot like the way we look at slumlords in inner cities. Only they had the muscle of the Roman military behind them. It was this legalized system of extortion and exploitation. And yes, sometimes there were laws that try to curb you know, the excess of their overcharging, but they were rarely enforced. Rarely. So for those who loved money, It was almost an irresistible incentive to try to become a tax collector. 
So the animosity and the hostility people felt towards tax collectors was way worse than the way you and I may feel about the IRS. But Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. We're told he was a chief tax collector. He was the head of the Jericho tax cartel. See, Jericho was, it was one of the major custom centers and a major trade route in that part of the world. It was the tax capital of Palestine. And as the chief administrator of the tax collecting system, he probably didn't do a lot of the tax collecting himself. He just hired underlings who did the work for him, and he took a cut from their labors. So Zacchaeus is supervising a massive and elaborate system of extortion. And apparently he's doing quite well, because we are also told in verse 2 that he was rich. So I want you to have this image in your mind. He lived in Atherton in a ginormous mansion. He drove a bright yellow Hummer, okay? He had a vacation home in Maui. He wore only Italian-made suits, and he did it all through a Ponzi scheme preying upon East Palo Alto. That's Zacchaeus. And to add on top of all of this, Zacchaeus was regarded as a traitor to his people. Why? Because he was Jewish. We know that because his name is Jewish. And it means righteous one. And he was collaborating with the Roman government to financially skin his own people. This guy is a wretch. He's a swindler and a cheat. He's a shakedown artist. Zacchaeus is a man we'd all love to hate. So how would you expect Jesus to treat a man like this? And maybe a question we should ask ourselves is, how do you respond to the Zacchaeus as you know? See, Zacchaeus is the guy we'd all love to hate. He preys on the poor to support his own lavish lifestyle. He gets filthy rich to the abuse of power and exploitation. He's a serial sinner. He's an object of social contempt because of these things. He is the poster child for cancellation. That's Zacchaeus. But somehow his day ends with Jesus feasting and staying at his house. See, there's more to his story than his worst sins and failures. Something is going on with Zacchaeus. Something that leads him to climb that tree. Now, this, this, it feels like such a cute little story, but you got you to gotta tend to the details here. Climbing a tree is something a child does, not an adult does. It's highly unusual, especially for someone who's in a position of power and influence. So wouldn't it be weird if you saw Gavin Newsom climbing a tree to get a glimpse of the Rose Bowl parade? You'd be like, that's so weird. What is going on here, right? Yet here we have a wealthy government official running like a little boy ahead of a parade and then climbing up a tree to get a good glimpse. It's a very undignified act. Why did he climb up that tree? Well, one of the reasons the text tells us is he was short, small of stature, He's a little guy, probably picked on at the playgrounds in Palestine growing up. But scholars will tell you that this little phrase, small of stature, is, is, is kind of one of those packed phrases that, that may not be referring to simply his height, but his status in society because of what a wretch he was. That no one would let him get a glimpse of Jesus. They're like, get, get out of here. He's shunned. No one liked him. He has no friends No one's going to make room for him. And no crowd of respectable religious people would move aside for him to get a peek. They probably hated him. He'd been ripping them off for years. 
Yet the reason behind the reason that he gets up in that tree is Zacchaeus desperately wanted to see Jesus. And Luke makes this point twice in verse 3 and 4. He doesn't want us to miss it. He wants to see who Jesus is. Maybe he's heard about him. He's heard that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Wanted to see him so badly that he is willing to swallow his pride and lose his dignity and climb up a tree. He's humiliating himself for a chance to see Jesus. So I want you to imagine Zach in a mink coat with all his bling, like hustling down the street and climbing up a tree in order to see Jesus. It's humility. Uh, it's humiliating. It's, this isn't an act of virtue. This is an act of desperation. And Luke has been preparing us for these kind of moments all along. What have we learned? We've learned that it's the needy, not the self-sufficient, who end up embracing Jesus. That it's the empty, not the full. That it's the desperate, not the self-assured. These are the people who are always flocking to Jesus. And you know who the people who, who aren't so keen on Jesus are? It's religious folk who are deeply entrenched in their pride. You know, it's pride that often gets in the way of successful people seeing and embracing Jesus. Pride in our accomplishments, pride in our moral rectitude, pride in our well-ordered lives, pride in our beliefs and values. It's pride. And the thing is, is like you, if you really want to know Jesus, you're going to have to swallow your pride. You may have to look foolish. You might have to act in a way that seems undignified. You might have to climb a tree. Right? And for some of you, like just showing up to church feels a little humiliating. And you, want to, you want to come in and then get out before anyone notices you're here. Your friends say, like, hey, uh, where were you? Like, oh, like I had something going on on Sunday morning, right? So it's just, and the reason is, and this is understandable, is we don't want to be associated with slick and smarmy evangelists. We don't want to be associated with some political party we despise or with the judgmental and exclusive, which is kind of the reputation the church has. But do we not realize that in many ways it takes a giant amount of pride and self-righteousness to be so down on the church that you refuse to consider Jesus? Swallowing our pride is part of the deal to discovering his grace. For others of us, it's taking the Bible seriously. It feels intellectually infantile, embarrassing. But if you're going to see Jesus, you're going to have to swallow your pride. And you have to do something undignified. You have to be that desperate. Zacchaeus became like a little child. Losing his dignity, empty-handed, climbed a tree for the chance to see Jesus. But this story is here to remind us that there are no hopeless cases. No one is beyond hope. Maybe you have lost hope for yourself. You think your sins, your issues, your failures, they're too deep, they're too entrenched, they're too repulsive, they're too weird for you to be the object of God's salvation. But if a man like Zacchaeus can have it, so can you and I. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Or maybe it's not you that you've lost hope for. Maybe it's someone else. Maybe it's your spouse or an ex-spouse or it's a parent or it's a son or daughter or some friend of yours or maybe even a coworker. Like who is it that you've given up on, that you've written off, that you've, de you've decided, I I've just lost hope for them. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. 
Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And that means there are no hopeless cases. So here's Jesus walking into Jericho, going right past the priests and the Levites who are awaiting their rotation in the Jerusalem temple. And he goes right up to the worst guy in town, and he says, I want to stay at your house tonight. Zacchaeus is one more example of Jesus loving the hated, the ostracized, and the cast out. That God's salvation, it's for the swindlers and the cheats. It's for the prostitutes and the moral train wrecks. It's for the hated and despised. And it is for the prideful when they swallow their pride to get a glimpse of Jesus. Zacchaeus was exactly the kind of person that Jesus came for. The story of Zacchaeus tells us there are no hopeless cases. None. Jesus is the Savior who seeks and saves the lost. And that's the first thing I want us to take to heart. Here's the second thing. The grace of Jesus changes more than you could possibly imagine. And, you know, we were talking about this this week in, um, in one of our uh, ministry training meetings, is that we, we have a very impoverished view of grace. We think grace is just letting things slide, being nice, overlooking real wrongs, But grace is much, much bigger and more powerful than that. Jesus is incredibly kind and gracious with Zacchaeus. He says, today I'm coming to your house. And that actually ticked a lot of people off. It's it's not what people would have expected. Jesus has said some some really sharp and critical things, the kind of behaviors that Zacchaeus is engaged in. So most probably thought... Look, if Jesus is stopping and seeing this guy up there, he's about to go loco on him, right? He's going to stick it to him. Zacchaeus is finally going to get what he deserves. He's going to get a good thrashing. So why didn't Jesus say, Zacchaeus, let me tell you about your sin? Surely Zacchaeus needed his sins exposed, right? But I bet it was the fact that Zacchaeus was up there in that tree, in that humiliating place, that signaled the Spirit was already at work in his life. That he knew What he's done is wrong, and he was searching for a way out. I mean, is it too much of a stretch to believe that Zacchaeus was a lonely, greedy, selfish, miserable man, and he wanted out? Zacchaeus is in that tree because he knows his need. He wanted to see Jesus. He's heard about him. But Jesus wasn't just content to be seen. I'll pass by. He stops, and he calls him by name. Because Jesus wanted in to Zacchaeus' life. Now, up to this point in, this, in the story of the Gospel of Luke, it's mainly the religious leaders who've been grumbling at this kind of behavior of Jesus. But now the whole crowd is put off. Because for Jesus to eat in this man's house would be regarded as scandalous in the religious environment in the first century. Because if you're eating with somebody, that makes you complicit when they're crimes. It's a sign of solidarity and friendship. It, it, that's, that's why they're, 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 they're deeply put off. Jesus is befriending the guy everyone loved to hate. And he was saying, Zach, it is time for you and me to sit down together, to drink some wine, to dip some pita bread and hummus. I don't know what they did, but uh, uh, we're going we're gonna to have a talk. And Jesus isn't dining with Zacchaeus to affirm him in his sin but to offer the fellowship of his forgiveness and grace. And Zacchaeus is overwhelmed by Jesus' kindness. Here we get the first sign of genuine faith in Zacchaeus' life. 
It says he received Jesus joyfully. You know, there is a time for curiosity, for investigation, for exploration. All those things are really important if you're here and you're checking Christianity out. But there is also a time for receiving, for trusting, for welcoming Jesus into your life. And that time for Zacchaeus was now. And Zacchaeus received him joyfully. Here's the irony. It wasn't simply Zacchaeus who was seeking to see Jesus. Jesus was seeking out Zacchaeus. This story never happens if Jesus doesn't stop. If Jesus doesn't say, Zach, come out of that tree. I want to come and dine at your house tonight. This is grace. This is the kindness and love of Jesus. And what happens when the grace of Jesus enters your life? Well, one of the things that happens is repentance. Almost immediately, Zacchaeus is exhibiting genuine repentance. He's given a public confession of his faith. He calls Jesus Lord, but he's also given a public declaration of his reputation as a swindler and as a cheat. See, faith and repentance go hand in hand. There's no real turning towards Jesus without a simultaneously turning from sin. And if you ask the question, which is more important, that's just silly. It's like asking which wing on a plane is better. You need them both to fly. And genuine faith always is accompanied by genuine repentance. And it's exactly what we see in Zacchaeus. He's owning his junk and he's publicly committing himself to the demanding work of restitution. You know, the moral logic of what he's doing and giving back, giving money to the poor and uh, paying back uh, what he has defrauded is actually found in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But there's an excess to what Zacchaeus is proclaiming here. Instead of giving away 10%, he's pledging 50%. Instead of paying back 120%, he's going to pay back 400%. It's as if Zacchaeus is emptying his pockets on the spot. But here's what's fascinating. Jesus hasn't said a word to him about money. Not a single word. What in the world is going on here? You know what's going on? Jesus had become his salvation. I don't know if you catch this, but Jesus says, I want to come to your house. And then in verse 9, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Today I'm coming to your house. And a moment later, today salvation has come to this house. What's going on here? Jesus is salvation. Christianity is so different from other religions. Is that the center is not so much a set of teachings or rules, but a person. A person that you either love or hate or are indifferent to. A person you either receive or reject. Zach wanted to catch a glimpse of Jesus, but Jesus wanted to give him so much more. He wanted to give him himself as his salvation. You know what our salvation is? It's what we look to for our identity, security, meaning, and purpose. That's, what, that, that's our salvation. Zacchaeus had been financially wealthy, but he came come to discover his moral and spiritual bankruptcy. And at this moment when his life is being flooded with spiritual wealth, he, he immediately discovers he doesn't need to hoard his financial wealth anymore. Money used to be his identity and security. Money was what he lived for. That's why he's involved in this scheme. He's sacrificing everything to have it. His reputations, his relationships, his integrity. But now that Jesus has become his salvation and come into his life, he immediately is able to let go of his money. Zacchaeus 
is being radically transformed by the grace and love of Christ. You know, there's a quote at the front of your bulletin, which I love. It's from uh, the great Scottish theologian, Sinclair Ferguson. And he says, when your heart is given over to the Lord, it is amazing what falls out of your hands. You know, maybe that's not money for you. But what is it that you've found yourself living for? What is it that your life is animated to sacrifice for? What is it that is giving you meaning and security and comfort to such a degree that you can hardly bear the thought of losing it? See, whatever it is, it begins to distort and damage our lives in profound ways. If you live for success, you find your ambition driving you away from real relationships. If you live for approval, you find yourself in the vice grip, the fear of disappointing all the time, that nervous anxiousness inside of, am I enough for others? If you live for comfort, you find yourself trying to escape the pain and suffering that inevitably finds you through porn or overeating or over-drinking or over-exercising. And it's, it begins to imprison you and multiply your heartache. But here, the good news. When Jesus invites himself into your life, he brings with him not only full forgiveness, but liberation from the idols that control you. How? By becoming your salvation your security, your identity, your meaning and purpose. Zacchaeus was a man who had spent his whole entire adult life collecting debts. But now he's finding his own debts canceled by the lavish grace of God, and it sets him free from his money. Sets him free from what's controlling him. Because that's what grace does. Grace is more powerful than you could possibly imagine. And it can change you in ways that a rule can never. Now, I want to I land this by asking a question. Because I don't think this story is here simply to encourage those who are lost to find their salvation in Jesus. It is. But the presence of the crowds and their grumbling tells us that there's more going on here. This story is here to get those of us who actually say, Jesus is my salvation, to ask ourselves, are we in step with his mission? You see, Jesus gives us this mission statement that he came to seek and to save the lost. What is the mission of the church? It is the exact same thing. See, we're not just the objects of Jesus's mission. We're actually the agents. We are called to participate in Jesus' mission of seeking and saving the lost. That means we got to ask some questions about ourselves. Who is it that we tend to write off? Who is it we want to avoid and we don't want to get involved with? Who is it that we deeply despise, that we refuse to engage? You know, behind that avoidance and revulsion is the notion that they just don't measure up to our standards. They're not moral enough. They're not classy enough. They're not cool enough. They're not theologically precise enough. They're not enough. And underneath it at all is a self-righteousness that keeps us from really seeing the beauty and the glory of Jesus. You cannot, you cannot be the object of Jesus' salvation unless you see you are lost without him. And the only way you'll have the heart of Jesus for the lost is if you see yourself as lost and he found you. See, the mission of the church is not to bring our well-ordered lives and happy selves to people and say, be like me. The mission is lost people who've been found by Jesus 
pointing others to Jesus who seeks and saves the lost. Jesus is still on mission, seeking and saving the lost. And he does it through his hands and feet, the body of Christ. He wants to use you and he wants to use me. I bet everybody in this room, if you've come to discover your salvation in Jesus, has a story to tell about how Jesus used someone or someone's in your life. I have many, but one in particular stands out. (laughs) Jesus has a tendency of walking into our lives uninvited and unannounced and uh, bringing his salvation. And for me, that happened in 1988. It was the senior girl who was very pretty, who lived (laughs) next door to me, a freshman boy, who knocked on my door to invite me to come to a church camp. And I'm like, yes, please. (laughs) I was 14 years old. My family had fallen apart. We were homeless. And a Christian woman had invited us to live in her house. And this woman saw what a train wreck I was. And she got the senior girl next door to come over and knock on the door of the freshman boy. And that was the moment that Jesus came into my house. You see, this is what Jesus does, is he uses his people as his hands and feet, as his embrace, as his presence in the world to do his work, which is to seek and to save the lost. See, the story of Zacchaeus is a miracle. It's a camel going through the eye of the needle. It's the impossible by God's grace becoming possible. It's our only hope of salvation. Jesus seeking and saving the lost. But the story is told and the crowds and the reaction of grumbling are present because it's meant to get us to say, how will you respond? First, do you see yourself as lost in need of being found by the seeking and saving Jesus? And secondly, will you participate in this mission of seeking and saving the lost? That's what Jesus wants for his people. And it is a big, enormous story that reshapes all the little stories of our lives. And it gives meaning and purpose and identity and security to our lives. How will you respond to Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful that you're the one who seeks and saves the lost. And as you told your disciples, that would mean uh, that you would suffer and die and be raised. And uh, you did this because of your great love and of your great grace. And that grace is so much bigger and more powerful than we could possibly imagine that it can radically change us. So Lord, we we come to you in our need. Uh, We pray that you would become our salvation. And whether that's for the first time or for the millionth time, that it would go deeper into our hearts, that you are our identity, you are our security, you are our meaning and purpose. And that you, by your spirit, would animate us to be a people who want to be about your mission in the world. Uh, Lord, we're desperate for your help here. Uh, We beg your grace, and uh, we thank you that it is ours for the taking in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.